Hey everybody, so my 50th episode is with a New York Times best-selling author and a Philadelphia native, Kelly Corgan. You might have also seen Kelly on guest appearances on the Today Show, or you may have come across her pieces in the New York Times. If you haven't read her books, definitely do so. They'll make you both hysterically laugh and cry. So Kelly grew up right outside of Philadelphia in Villanova with her parents and two brothers, GT and Booker, where they all attended Radnor High School. Kelly takes us on her journey of how she got from point A to point B in becoming a New York Times bestselling author. She's a true testament that everyone's journey in life is very different. And so long as you aren't afraid of failure, you can make things happen. Kelly always loved writing in her journal and sending long letters to her family from camp, but it wasn't until she was 36 and diagnosed with cancer at the same time as her father that she decided to write her first book called Middle Place, which is about her father's battle with cancer and her triumph over the, the disease. Here's the coolest part. The book was published in 2008, became a New York Times bestseller, and Kelly and her dad did a book tour together. Since then, she has written three more books, Lift, Glitter and Glue, and Tell Me More. Her most recent book, Tell Me More, is a book about essential phrases in life that will help you navigate all sorts of relationships. My favorite part is when she writes about why saying I was wrong is so much more effective than I'm sorry. Lastly, I absolutely love how Kelly writes about her loyalty and genuine love for her late father, George, who often went as Greenie, her mother, Mary, her brothers, her husband, Edward, and her two girls, Georgia and Claire. So welcome, Kelly, to the podcast. Super excited to have you here. Uh, <laughs> and given that you are a Philadelphia native, I would absolutely love for you to start from the very beginning, your childhood on Wooded Lane in Villanova. Yeah, so I'm the youngest of three. I'm, I'm the only girl, which I think is really of all the configurations you could have as an original family unit. Uh, I feel like I got the best slot ever. Mm -hmm. And I had this dad who uh, was just particularly good at parenthood. Mm -hmm. It just came really naturally to him. He was, he's a real people person and he was a natural listener. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I was always really, uh, really close with him and really comfortable with him and felt very sort of safe in the world and welcome in the world. And I sort of trace all that back to him. Right. And then I went to Radnor high school, which I, I just think is the greatest high school ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went to Radnor K through 12 and, um, in, in high school, starting as a sophomore, I had PhDs as my English teachers. So I had three in a row, doctor, 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 okay. uh, sophomore, junior, senior year. And that's just a different level. I mean, they're, they're just bringing a lot to the table. Sure. And um, those conversations were so rich and challenging and exciting. And it really made me think that, like, the coolest thing that a person could be was um, a storyteller. Right. Yeah. And then my dad was really into that idea. You know, he was really into whatever I was into. So if I right. said I wanted to be, like, a collage artist, he'd be like, collage artist, Bobby, let's do it. <laughs> you know, or I want to be a cartwheel expert. It's like, cartwheels, I love cartwheels. <laughs> but the thing I picked was writing, and he, you know, it just fell right in line on that. And... I tried to do it um, when I was young. I tried to do it. I wrote a lot in college. I was in the, our creative writing magazine all the time at Richmond. Okay. And I wrote after college. I tried to write a novel that was um, very 
thinly veiled autobiography of this experience I had being a nanny in Australia mm-hmm. that eventually became a memoir, right. uh, Glitter and Glue. But I didn't even know that memoir existed. Like, I thought memoir was memoir. Okay. And I thought it was, like, something that, you know, Elizabeth Taylor would write her memoir. Mm-hmm. And then after college, I thought, oh, I don't know if this is ever going to come together, feels sort of stupid and like this crazy pipe dream. Right. And maybe I'll get a PhD in English to teach uh, high school English. Okay. It's really my dream. And you were living in California at that point, right? And I had moved to California after this okay. big trip around the world. And when I first saw California, I really loved it. Okay. And I was getting a master's in English lit at San Francisco State for $300 a semester. And I was totally underwater with the assignments like the, the kids in this program were unbelievably bright and hardworking and we were reading a thousand pages a week on top of a full-time job and you know, we were in night classes from 7 to 10 p.m which is just like total you know nine kids and a deep deep three-hour conversation it was mm-hmm. just incredible experience i okay. couldn't recommend it more and um and I thought, well, I guess this is what I'll do. I guess I'll teach. Okay. And then right around then, I read Anne Lamott Operating Instructions. Okay. And I had never read a book like that. I, I had been reading for school. I was an English major in college, and then I, here I was getting this master's in English lit, which involves reading Shakespeare and Dickens and poetry, et cetera. And then there was Anne Lamott, talking like a normal person, telling stories of a normal life, utterly unheroic. Mm-hmm. And so enjoyable. Like, I ripped through that book. And I was single, no experience with children. And that book is really about her first year as a mother. Okay. And still, I was, like, riveted. And that opened up this idea in me that maybe there was a category of book that I was capable of writing. Okay. That would bring people joy or feel useful to people. Mm -hmm. But still, I, I couldn't make myself write the whole write a whole book without any promise that I would ever be able to get an agent. Right. And, you know, I was buying, like, back then, uh, the way you got an agent, if you were totally unconnected, which I was, was you would go to the bookstore and buy these catalogs. They were directories of agents. Wow. And they would list thousands of agents. Okay. And each agent um, entry would be like, these are her their famous clients, these are the categories of books that they're interested in. And you just go through it with a ruler and like highlight people that had worked with an author you liked or had been a part of a book that you enjoyed or thought was comparable to the thing you imagined writing. Okay. So it was really discouraging. Like it felt, re- it started to feel real stupid. Okay. And how old were you at this point too? Just... Like 26, 27. Okay, got it. Um, and then, you know, like 10 years later, I got married and had two kids and got cancer, like, very quickly, one, two, three, four. Okay. And then right after that, my dad got cancer. Right. And, and right around that time was the when self-publishing became a thing. Okay, got it. And that felt like, oh, okay, I'll just do it like this. I'll just do this. I'll just write the story of what it is to be George Corrigan's daughter. Okay. And I'll self-publish it and I'll give it to him. And that, that will be the culmination of this dream. Right. And that's exactly what I did. 
Okay. I wrote it. I made my friend lay it out, this guy Racky Labor, who was like a graphics design guy. I made him make up a cover. (laughs) (laughs) And I published this tiny 100-page book. Right. I love that. I gave it to my dad. And you were 36 at that point? I was about 40 at this point. 40, okay. After it was all over. Got it. Well, actually, I would have been 37 because okay. then I made a copy for my sister-in-law, Phoebe. And okay. Phoebe knew a guy from her college, from college who worked at ICM, which is one of the big agencies in New York. Okay. And she gave it to him. And he had already left to go back to school to get a journalism degree. Okay. But he gave it to another person at ICM named Andy Barbsey. Andy's a woman. Okay. And she loved it. Okay. I love that. And story. then it became like a real book. Right, right, right. And then I heard that you um, and your dad went around and toured together with the, the God, it was so fun. Yeah. It was so fun. That's amazing. And you don't mind me asking, how old are you? Because I just want to know how, how long ago like this was. 52. <laughs> 52, okay. So this is like only like 12 years ago, right? Exactly. Okay, crazy. Um, I love that you shared that story because I think a lot of people um, are afraid of failure. So they have these, you know... Um, dream to start a company or chase a job that they really want, but they're afraid that, you know, they won't get the job or their company will fail. And so are you able to give, you know, based on your experience, some advice to someone that might be listening who may be in that spot and how not to fear failure? I mean, I think it would be more, I think maybe the, the only way to sequence the matter Mm -hmm. in your head is wouldn't you fear never trying even more? Right. Like, wouldn't you fear being 85 years old and saying to your grandkids, I always wanted to make a movie. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to start a little little company. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to quit my job and go hiking in Nepal. Mm-hmm. Like, let that be your fear. Right. Like, really lean into that moment. Like, visualize that. Mm-hmm. Like, with tears in your eyes at 80 years old and the moment has passed and you didn't try it. Mm-hmm. Like, won't you just, wouldn't that just be awful? Right. Much, much, much more awful than saying to your grandkid, oh, my God, I had this crazy dream. You know, I wanted to start this um, fashion company and I, I raised all this money and mm-hmm. I went out there and I made a set of handbags and then I tried belts and then I tried shoes and then I totally hired this person and that didn't work out and then the whole thing fell apart what a ride what a ride right yeah like I think maybe for me anyway I mean I was a person who had panic attacks so a thing that the person this woman Priscilla Marquis who I went to see in the wake of those panic attacks said to me is you should use your very powerful imagination Mm -hmm. for good not evil right so instead of visualizing all the ways that it could go wrong, why don't you visualize all the ways that it could go right? Right. Yeah. And why don't that. you attach all that detail to them like you like to do? Right. And, you know, let that be your North Star. Exactly. Um, and that's a real thing. Like, that's a real dividing line in the world. It's like people who work really hard because they're afraid to fail mm-hmm. and people who have work really hard because they have this giant success fantasy. Right. So it's like a failure fantasy or a success fantasy. And it is just a choice of like, it is just an intellectual exercise to say, okay, so I've, I've spent plenty of time imagining how stupid I could look Mm -hmm. if this thing bombs. Okay. Why don't I spend a half an hour just really visualizing what it would feel like for this to work? Yeah. 
I love that. Or to have tried, really, really to stay within your sphere of control, you would just imagine having tried. Right. Because like my, in my world, like writing books, the the promise of success is so low. Mm -hmm. There are thousands and thousands of books published every year. Mm -hmm. And there's just absolutely no reasonable expectation that your book would break through the noise and be something that people had ever heard of. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, if you ask people like what they're reading right now, most people aren't reading anything. Right. And the people who are reading something have no idea what the name of the author is. Mm -hmm. So that's the game you're playing. Yeah. (laughs) It's to be one of those forgotten people. So you better find a different way to get off on it. It better be about the work. Yeah. Or just a very small circle of readers. Like for me, a thing that really keeps me going is imagining like giving the book to a very specific person, like with glitter and glue. I imagine giving it to my mom and giving it to the kids in Australia that I was a nanny for. Right. Exactly. Um, and one thing I actually, I listened, like I told you, I listened to your podcast series last night. I think you had it. Exactly. I think it was with Jason Siegel and he did a great line. He said, um, most of what you try to do is labeled impossible until you do it. And then he said, or you might've said successful people are totally normal people that didn't give up. So I thought that was a cool quote that you guys talked about. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And everything, even, you know, I just saw this great thing yesterday that I thought I might try to do something with. I've been writing for the New York Times recently. Mm-hmm. And it's been really satisfying. I have this awesome editor there, Roberta Zeff, and she's just so easy to work with that it's very inspiring for me to keep trying. Mm-hmm. And I'm two, two for one. Like I, I'm two for three with her. I've, I've given her three things and she's picked up two. Mm-hmm. But this thing I was thinking about yesterday was like a failure resume. Okay. Like what if I, I saw this thing at a high school where everybody puts rejection letters up on a wall. Okay. Yeah. And it was, I thought that was so great mm-hmm. because everybody's getting shot down from somewhere. Right. Exactly. And it may not be that relatable to like cry for someone who gets shot down by Yale. Yeah. But everybody's getting shot down. Yeah. Because everybody's going to shoot a little high, which is good. But right. As we should. Exactly. So I was thinking, like, as an adult, how fun would it be to put together a list of your failures and publish it? Because I was also thinking yesterday that there was some movie that had Selma Hayek and Alec Baldwin that someone mentioned to me that they saw on a plane. Okay. And I was thinking about how, as a, as a creative person, how lovely it is that if you if you have a flop, like most people have never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Like right. I've never heard of the Alec Baldwin Salma Hayek movie. It's not like staining their reputation. Exactly. They're not. They're nobody's laughing at them because nobody's even heard of it. It just sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Right. Exactly. And that happens sometimes. Like you yeah, try mm-hmm. something and it's a bust. It's a bust. But it's yeah. actually it doesn't stick to you in any way. Like the when I get introduced, nobody says she's written four books. Only two of them have been really runaway successes. Right. 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 They just say what they say and so anyway I was kind of intrigued by this idea of like people really talking openly and proudly of their failures right I love that I agree um and you have a, you have a bunch of quotes throughout your book too I think this quote is from tell me more you said into every life some rain must fall 
which I thought, um, that is not my quote. That's not your quote. Okay. (laughs) No, that's like a really famous, (laughs) I think that's a really famous quote, an old adage from 200 years ago. Uh, I think, I think Amish ladies have been saying that for 300 years. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. So, um, but I, I think it, um, you quoted someone in Tell Me More. Yeah. yeah. And so I, that But quote, I mean, no question, right? Like yeah. I, I was waiting. When I got diagnosed with cancer at 36, I thought, oh, here it is. Mm-hmm. Like my thing. Right. Whatever my thing is. Because yeah. I hadn't had a thing yet. Yeah. My parents were alive. They were married. I liked my brothers. Everybody was healthy. Okay. We had a house. We never had a natural disaster. We never had a tragic loss. Right. So it was like, oh, okay, well, finally, like, something bad is happening, and I'm just going to have to take it. Right, exactly. Um, and one thing I wanted to talk about, too, um, going back to your childhood a little bit in Villanova. So um, I know you talked about your dad a lot throughout all your books, um, Greeny, and how, you know, he made everyone feel irreplaceable. Um, but I also want to talk about your mom, because there's definitely a lot of Philadelphia people tuning in. And I know um, in Glitter and Glue, you write about how – you know, when you were nanny in Australia for the Tanner family, how you really came to appreciate your relationship with her. So mm-hmm. can you talk about um, your mom, Mary Corrigan, a little bit and the influence she's had on you? Yeah, she's a pretty remarkable person. Mm-hmm. She's incredibly independent. Mm-hmm. She takes seriously the notion that we are all responsible for our own happiness. Mm-hmm. Like her favorite sentence is this French saying, chacun a son goût which means to each his own. Okay. And that, I just think that's kind of an original thought, especially for a mom, especially for a mom of that era. Mm -hmm. Because there is, there is a counter notion that's popular, which is, you know, mothers are here to serve. They're here to make other people's lives better and smoother. Mm -hmm. And it's our job as mothers to make our children happy and make our spouse happy. Mm -hmm. And, that's not at all how she approached it. Her sense was like, my job is to hold, um, is to hold the boundaries in place. And then you take over from there, but I'm going to create a safe space. I'm going to create a consistent space. I'm going to create a a place with rules Mm -hmm. that you can count on being enforced. Mm -hmm. And the rest is up to you. Like there was never, not an ounce of pressure for success or achievement. Mm -hmm. It it was never, I don't remember talking about college with, with my parents. Okay. I don't remember filling out applications and having them like hovering above me. Right. I don't remember them ever asking me about like, are you going to try out for varsity this or varsity that? Right. I mean, they just went along for the ride, but the, the way that they, the way that my mom parented is has actually come to appear to me as pretty admirable right like it was it was kind of hands-off in all the ways that you should be Mm hands-off and very hands-on in terms of safety which was like a huge concern of hers like we were the generation that um invented mothers against drunk driving like we were the first generation to even think about wearing seat belts okay and the first generation to have the term designated driver. Mm-hmm. So there was this thing hanging over high school every Friday, every Saturday night mm-hmm. that Uber seatbelts and designated drivers has sort of at least reduced. Right, right, right. For me as a parent now of teenagers. Yeah. Um, 
So she she had these, you know, she was really trying to get us through high school safe and as like moral people. Like right. the center of her life is the Catholic Church. She goes to church every single day. Mm-hmm. She loves it, um, and it it's created for her this incredible sense of uh, peace and and given her this north star that's um, has been infallible for her. Mm-hmm. And so that's where she lives. That's her zone. Right. She's an incredible, absolutely incredible grandmother. Yeah. And it's so funny to see because I was, um, I'm a way more emotional person than she is. Mm-hmm. So I was always looking for like, you know, hugs and tears and compliments and mushy gushy. And it's just not how she rolls. And then we bring these children to her and she's cries in the driveway when they leave. And she can't take her <laughs> oh. hands off them and she wants to bathe them and she wants to brush their hair and yeah. she wants to tuck them in at night. And they have all these little routines. She takes them to church. She takes them for donuts after church. I mean, donuts. Mm-hmm. There were no donuts going yeah. down on Wooded Lane in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> <laughs> so it's amazing. I'm so happy. I mean, I, I thought about this a lot when I was writing Blair and Blue because that mom died, the mm-hmm. mom of the kids that I was a nanny for. Right. And the kids are going to have such an un- incomplete understanding of her. And I feel so lucky that my mom has lived for so long because there's whole sides of her that only in the last 10 years have I, you know, been able to observe. Appreciate. Right. Yeah. Um, And you know, she's just such a different grandmother than she was a mother as a, as I'm sure most people are. Right. And I'm so delighted to get to know that part of her. Yeah. I love that. Um, and I know we only have a couple more minutes, so I wanted to talk about, um, one of my favorite phrases from tell me more, cause I think it could definitely help the listeners. Um, mm. a lot of themes i speak about in my past podcast interviews is, um, is about listening and how it's an art and how you have to practice it. Cause I personally think it's, it can be hard and coach Jay Wright of Villanova. He always tells his team and he also didn't come up with this quote, but he always tells his team, you have two ears and one mouth. So always listen twice as much as you speak. Um, so would love for you to talk about some of those phrases, you know, tell me more, you know, go on that are so, um, helpful, um, when you're listening to someone else. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that I really came to appreciate when I was writing, tell me more is that, um, I'm sort of a lean in activist type friend, spouse, mother. Mm -hmm. Like if you come to me and you say, oh, you're having a problem, like my, instinct is to help you solve the problem. Right. And I thought that that was like the best thing I could do for you. Like that was the most loving reaction I could have. Mm -hmm. And I've really come to believe that it, it's the second best thing I could do for you. The best thing I could do for you is to make you feel that you've been felt, which would require way more listening and way less problem solving. Mm -hmm. So it would be like if you were to a- able to get the whole thing out and describe it in a, in a level of detail that no one else has had the patience to allow for. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that is to say, tell me more, go on, what else? Right. Because I don't think that people walk around talking about the real problem. Right. I think they have these more acceptable versions of the problem that are like headlines. Right. So they'll say, oh, I'm just so frustrated with my boss. You know, he's just, he never listens. Mm-hmm. And then 
But the real truth is you feel like you got passed over for a promotion. And the real truth is that you feel like maybe you deserve to get passed over for a promotion because you don't have the real confidence that you would need to do that bigger job. Right. But you're never going to get to that real stuff about Mm -hmm. self-esteem and self-confidence and insecurity and imposter syndrome and all the stuff that's underneath hating your boss. If you're like, you know what? You should get a new job. Like that guy's crazy and it's time for you to really, it's like, so now you just close the door mm-hmm. on all that stuff underneath the headline and you're going to solve the problem in a way that's not really addressing the core issue. Mm-hmm. So then they leave and you think, oh my God, I was so helpful. <laughs> I just really came up with a great idea for them. <laughs> and they leave thinking like, she doesn't, she has no idea what I'm really feeling. Right. Yeah. And I think this happens with kids all the time. And I think this is why they say, you don't understand. You don't understand. I think they're right. Right. I think we don't understand. I think we're so cocky as parents that we're like, got it. I know exactly what this one is. I've been through it myself. Here's what you do. Right. And it's like, but you haven't. It's not, it's not exactly that. It's something different. And you are so quick on the trigger you've got to listen longer way longer and the magic is and we can end on this but the magic is mm-hmm. if you listen long enough the person solves their own problem yeah right which That's is so true. the yeah. ultimate satisfaction like if right. you solve the problem for them you're like so greedy you're just stealing all that that satisfaction that comes with like untying a knot right exactly but if you witness them untie their own knot They get the satisfaction. They get the self-esteem boost. They feel more capable in the world. And you witness them doing something hard. Yeah, exactly. And one phrase that you use a lot, um, or you said your friend Paul uses, is that must be really hard. I know. Isn't that funny? (laughs) Yeah. Everyone, when they say what their job is, it's like, well, that must be really hard. And every (laughs) single person says, you're right, it is. (laughs) Everybody thinks that their life and their job is really hard. Right. (laughs) So if you give them that validation, it sort of, you know, makes them feel better a little bit. Um, Yes. And it like says to them, you can talk more about this if you want. Exactly. Um, well, Kelly, this is awesome. I know we've got to jump. So, um, like I said, you know, people love hearing about getting from point A to point B and the universal life lessons. So I think we achieved that within the whole podcast, which is great. You know, I want to say, um, there's a, there's a piece out right now Mm -hmm. on New York times about what to do after your kid submits a college application. I read that. Yes. That I really want to share with people because it's okay. a it's a lot about this. It's a lot about fear of failure. It's a lot about getting from point A to point B. Okay. And it's a lot about what are the life skills that actually um, create the conditions okay. for what most of us would consider an awesome life. And those right. skills are not necessarily going to a big name school. Right. Uh, and I can so link, anyway, I can link that sure. article in the show notes too. And when I you know yeah. post it everywhere, which will be great. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to High Five Success Stories. To learn more about the podcast, feel free to follow me on Instagram. My handle is at High Five Success or on Facebook. You can like High Five Success Stories with Steph Hayden or I'm also on Twitter. My handle is at High Five Hayden. And lastly, you can subscribe to the newsletter on my website, www.stephhayden.com. 
And if you get a second, I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much.